Welcome to the Legal One podcast, brought to you by Legal One, the leader in school law training in the state of New Jersey. Legal One is part of the NJPSA and FEA family, so we are thrilled to be offering this podcast to you as a way to help you gain a greater understanding of critical legal issues. We want to provide you with convenient, easy access to essential information. Each episode is 30 minutes or less, so it provides a timely way for you to get information. In each episode, we're going to be reviewing critical legal principles based on case law, statute, regulation, or other key guidance. We'll talk about why that issue matters today and how the law has evolved. We'll talk about key steps in working with parents and other critical stakeholders to positively address the issues in question and know how to get a greater level of understanding of these issues. So let's get started. And thank you so much for joining us for the Legal One podcast. Welcome to our episode of the Legal One podcast. We are very happy to have with us today a special guest, Robin Geigel. We're going to be talking about addressing the rights of transgender students and supporting transgender students and reviewing the legal framework that underlines all of the important work that we're doing to support our transgender students throughout our public school system. So I'm thrilled to have Robin Geigel with me today. My name is David Nash. I'm the director of the Legal One program. Robin, thank you so much for joining us. Why don't we just take a moment to have you introduce yourself? Well, first, let me start by saying thank you, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here. I, it's really um, something that I enjoy doing. We've done things together before. So so this is new, doing a podcast. So I'm looking forward to it. Um, my name is Robin Geigel. I am an attorney and a bit of an advocate on behalf of uh, the LGBTQ plus community. And um, of particular relevance to today's topic is I am a transgender woman. I also happen to be an author, but we're not going to be plugging my books today. So. Uh, we're happy to do that as well. So I think they're very, they're very relevant. Um, so as we're getting started, uh, of course, we have an audience uh, with a wide range of experiences and perspectives. Um, so I think it's important to start with some basics as we're talking about these issues. Language matters. When, when we're talking about issues of gender identity and expression. So let's take a moment to just talk a little bit about those basics and what we mean by a couple of key terms, gender identity, gender expression, sexual orientation. Robin, you wanna talk about those terms and some of the, the key issues that we should be aware of? Certainly, and I always caution people and, and not these particular terms. I mean, I think these are, are pretty static terms, but other terminology that, that students use, that people in the community use do evolve and change over time. So be sensitive to that. So in terms of the um, LGBTQ plus um, stands for lesbian, bi bisexual, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer, and um, so when we talk about lesbian, gay, bisexual, and sometimes some of the, the queer, um, we're talking basically about sexual orientation. That is who you are attracted to. Uh, sexual orientation is something that develops uh, as for most people as you approach puberty, and you don't have a choice in it. You're just, you know, you're attracted you know, to men, to women, to both. Um, so that's your sexual orientation, who you're physically attracted to. Gender identity is, is something different and, and we shouldn't confuse the terms. Gender identity deals with that 
deeply held sense of who you are, be that male, female, or, or somewhere in, in between those. And when we talk about transgender people, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about their sexual orientation. We're talking about their gender identity, that deeply held knowledge of who they are. And so keep that in mind that there's a distinction between sexual orientation and gender identity. And just like sexual orientation, people don't choose their gender identity. It's not a lifestyle choice. I didn't choose to be a transgender woman. I just am. That's who I am. That's who I've always been. And transgender people sometimes know from a very early age, like I did. And sometimes they it's something that they come to discover about themselves later on. So another key point is that not all transgender people are alike. So there's not one size fits all. The other term that you use, Dave, was gender expression, which is different, again, from gender identity and sexual orientation. Gender expression just means how you express yourselves in terms of who you are. So there can be um, cisgendered men, cisgender being someone whose gender identity and, and um, the sex that they were assigned at birth are aligned. So that's probably upwards of 98, 99% of the population are cisgender. You can have a cisgender male who expresses himself in what society would assume to be somewhat fem feminine expressions. So maybe they wear makeup, maybe they wear a lot of jewelry, maybe they're very flamboyant or they wear their hair long. That doesn't mean they're transgender. That just means that's the way they're expressing themselves. Same with a cisgender woman. Sometimes you see cisgender women who present in a very masculine fashion. But that doesn't mean, again, that they're a trans man. It just means that's the way they want to express themselves. So they're different concepts. They, they obviously have different meanings. Um, but they're all things that are protected under the law, a person's sexual orientation, a person's gender identity, and a person's gender expression. So, of course, the uh, concepts do sometimes, uh, with all good intentions, sometimes get confused. Um, so do you want to just touch on some of the specifics of transgender male and transgender female? Sometimes we'll have people who mix up those particular terms. Sure. A trans man is someone who was assigned female at birth, but has a male gender identity. A trans woman or a trans girl is someone that was assigned male at birth but has a female gender identity. And so you, you've you heard me now use the term assigned male at, uh, assigned gender at birth or assigned sex at birth um, on a number of occasions. All that means is that when a baby is born, the doctor, the midwife, the nurse, whoever delivers the baby takes a look at the external genitalia of the, of the infant. And if there's a penis, they say, congratulations, mom, you have a little boy. And if there's a vagina, they say, congratulations, mom, you have a little girl. That's all all that is involved in sex at signed at birth. And so we, as I mentioned earlier, we say someone whose sex is signed at birth, let's assume there was a penis, so they were assigned male and their gender identity. They, they feel they are male. They, that's their deeply held knowledge of who they are. Then they are a cisgender male. Someone, as I said, who was assigned um, male at birth, but has a female uh, identity is a transgender woman. And the same applies, you know, across the board in terms of, of a trans man, someone who is assigned female, uh, a cisgender female um, is somebody who is assigned female at birth and has a female gender identity. A trans man is somebody who is assigned female at birth, but has a male gender identity. 
So, of course, we could spend a great deal of time on terminology. Uh, we, as you mentioned, Robin, we do full day-long trainings uh, on these topics. Um, but I did want to specifically reference one other um, term uh, for us to, to comment on, non-binary. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. As I mentioned earlier, gender identity is that deeply held knowledge of who you are, be that male, female, or somewhere in the middle, someone who's non-binary, their gender identity, that deeply held sense of who they are, is neither male nor female. And, and so, you know, we tend to think of the world in terms of binary. There, there's two genders, male and female. Well, there's not. There, there's a whole spectrum in between. And so someone who is non-binary is someone who they know that they're not male. They know that they're not female. They're somewhere um, between that. Maybe they're a little bit more towards the, the masculine side. Maybe they're a little bit more towards the feminine side. But wherever they are, they don't identify as male or female. And, and I guess just to take one minute in terms of gender identity, because most cisgender people don't think of their gender identity um, because it is congruent. It is it does conform to the sex that they were assigned at birth. So the example that you know I like to use is most people think of, of gender identity as their external genitalia. And that's how if I said to people, what's your gender identity or what makes you a man or a woman, they would default to their to their external genitalia as opposed to the concept of gender identity. And what I like to say is, no, it's not your external genitalia. And I can kind of, you know, demonstrate that by saying if there was a cisgender male and he was in a horrible accident and for some reason, as part of that accident, he lost his external genitalia. Yes, he'd be physically, emotionally, mentally scarred, but when he woke up the next morning, he wouldn't say, oh, I'm a woman now, because his deeply held knowledge of who he is, is male. And so, you know, cisgender people don't tend to think about their gender identity. Somebody who's transgender or non-binary, they think about their gender identity all the time because it's not congruent with who they were assigned at birth. That's a great point. Um, and trying to get to that deeply held sense of who you are. Uh, sometimes, you know, for young kids, they might not have the language to understand how to communicate that issue. You might have that sense. You're not quite sure how to talk about that uh, with your peers, with your parents, with others. Um, so it is difficult um, at times to communicate that deeply held sense. And that's why you do want to have an affirming environment uh, when that student is ready to communicate who they are. That, that's absolutely correct, Dave. And, and for some people, as I said, like myself, I knew that I had this incongruency, but I didn't have the language to express it. And I'm much older than, than you know, the kids today. So there wasn't a whole lot of language. And, and there, you know, I grew up feeling I was the only one like me, but kids might not understand that feeling, that, that discomfort that they have. They might not be able to equate it to them feeling uncomfortable in the role that they were assigned at birth. So just because a kid or a child isn't saying, you know, I'm transgender, this is who I am, doesn't mean that they're not. It just means that they haven't come to the, to their own understanding yet. And everybody gets there, any trans person gets there in their own way and in their own time. Um, and the, the other thing going back to gender expression is don't confuse someone who's expressing themselves outside of societal norms as being necessarily transgender. 
um, they may well just want to express themselves differently than society would expect the young boy or a young girl to express themselves, but they are perfectly content being that young boy or young girl. They just want to express themselves differently. So now just with the, with some of that basic information about um, key concepts, let's talk about the legal framework that exists. And it does vary pretty significantly from state to state. Um, so do you want to comment a little bit about um, both under state and federal law, how we look at issues of gender identity? In terms of state law, as you said, Dave, there's 50 states, so we have 50 different state laws that govern protections or lack of protections for people within the LGBTQ plus community. There are 22 states that under their laws of discrimi against discrimination protect people based on their sexual orientation or their gender identity. Um, and those laws protect people based in terms of employment. So it'd be unlawful to terminate someone based on their sexual orientation or gender identity, um, housing, and 21 states, places of public accommodation. The state of Utah does not prevent discrimination against someone in place of public accommodation based on their, their uh, gender identity. Um, so for example, you go into a, a restaurant, um, that's a place of public accommodation. Um, you go to use a public restroom, that's a place of public accommodation. So 22 states protect people in terms of employment and housing discrimination based on their gender identity or sexual orientation, and 21 um, of those states protect people in terms of public accommodations. That leaves 28 states where people are not protected in public accommodations and housing based on their sexual orientation or gender identity. And then you notice I've left out employment there because in 2020, there was a U.S. Supreme Court decision, Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia, in which the Supreme Court held under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, that people were protected against discrimination based on their sexual orientation or gender identity, despite the fact that Title VII doesn't use either one of those terms, because the court found that if you discriminate against someone based on their sexual orientation or their gender identity, that you were discriminating against them because of sex, which is a term that is used in Title VII. So as of 2020, in all 50 states, it would be unlawful to terminate someone or discriminate against someone in terms of hiring or promotion based on their sexual orientation or their transgender status. The Supreme Court didn't use the terminology gender identity. They used transgender status. So that leaves open a question in terms of the, the issue you raised earlier about someone who's non-binary. Someone who's non-binary may or may not see themselves as being transgender. Um, so a little bit of a, a nuance there, but again, someone who is transgender would be protected under Title VII. The Bostock decision did leave two openings in terms of things it didn't decide, which was bathrooms, whether a transgender individual could use bathrooms in accordance with their gender identity or not. And the question as to whether or not an employer that had a deeply held religious belief that meant that they shouldn't have to employ someone who was lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender um, because it was against their religious tenets. The court left open whether or not under the First Amendment, they would have the right to discriminate based on their deeply held religious beliefs. And of course, um, 
We have seen a similar analysis from courts under Title IX that we have seen under Title VII. So while we don't have this a case directly on point yet, there are some parallels that we have seen in past cases. Yeah, because the same language, because of sex, is used in Title IX as well as Title VII. So the, the courts have generally, when they, when they interpret a Title IX case, will look to how they've interpreted similar language or similar situations in a Title VII case and vice versa. Sometimes you'll have a Title VII case where they'll look to Title, title IX law because, again, the terminology is the same. You can't discriminate because of sex. So, yes, there are a lot of Title IX cases that are are out there and ongoing in particular because you know the the issue of young transgender people participating in athletics has become a hot button subject and we will uh, dive into that um, in a moment. I wanted to go a little deeper into New Jersey law. So, of course, uh, for you and I, uh, we both uh, live and work in the state of New Jersey. Um, and uh, many of the listeners of our podcast happen to be from New Jersey. New Jersey has a very strong law against discrimination um, that does specifically address uh, protections linked to gender identity and gender expression. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about the parameters of uh, New Jersey law? Sure. Uh, it's called the New Jersey Law Against Discrimination. It was originally passed back in 1945, and it protects, at that point, it protected people based on their, their race, their ethnicity, their religion, their gender, sex, um, and a number of other categories. In 1992, the statute was amended to protect people, um, again, the same three categories that I had mentioned earlier, housing, employment and places of public accommodation in 1992 it was amended to protect people based on their sexual orientation. So in 1992, it became unlawful in New Jersey to discriminate against someone in employment, public accommodation or housing based on the fact that they were gay, lesbian or bisexual. Um, that was amended in 2000 and the statute was again amended in 2006, effective in 2007 to include gender identity or expression. So as of 2007, it has been unlawful in the state of New Jersey to discriminate against someone in housing, places of public accommodation, or uh, employment based on their gender identity or expression. And as I had mentioned earlier, in terms of the Bostock decision, it doesn't reference gender identity in the in the Supreme Court case. It represents transgender status. Well, in New Jersey, transgender status isn't referenced. What's protected is someone's gender identity or expression. So. You had asked a question earlier in terms of someone who's non-binary under New Jersey law, because that's their gender identity. Um, they are non-binary. They are protected under New Jersey law. Same with someone who is not necessarily transgender or doesn't have a gender identity that's not congruent with the sex that they were assigned at birth, but they just express themselves outside what society considers appropriate for their gender. They are likewise protected. Um, it's important. I've mentioned public accommodation several times, and um, in New Jersey, under the law against discrimination, public schools are places of public accommodation. So the New Jersey law against discrimination applies to all public schools in the state of New Jersey. Now, of course, when we start talking about our state-specific law, oftentimes the conversation turns quickly to restrooms and locker rooms and access to those facilities. Um, so I think it's important for us to comment on, on those areas and how specific the legislature was. In, in terms of the legislation, um, 
when it defines places of public accommodation and it includes a, a lot of terminology, it specifically says that places of public accommodation can maintain what I'll call sex segregated facilities. So bathrooms, locker rooms that are specific to a particular gender. So the ladies room, the men's room, the ladies locker room, the men's locker room. And the, and the statute specifically says you can maintain those separate sex segregated facilities. But if you do, you have to allow people to use those facilities in accordance with their gender identity. So that is specifically in the statute. So that, again, means in a, in a public school, to the extent that you have a transgender child whose gender identity is female, but they were assigned male at birth, um, they are permitted under New Jersey law to use the facilities, the sex segregated facilities in, in a school, it would be the bathrooms, the locker rooms in accordance with their gender identity. That's the law. Now, of course, the law changed in New Jersey to protect uh, gender identity and expression as of 2007. It took a while, but in 2018, the New Jersey Department of Education did put out uh, some pretty detailed guidance to help school officials understand um, how uh, those protections should play out in our schools on a daily basis. Uh, so we're gonna talk, let's talk a little bit about that guidance that I, I think helps to clarify uh, many of these issues. Uh, so for example, you might have a student who reveals to school officials uh, their gender identity, um, and then they ask school officials to start using a different name and pronoun um, when addressing that student. Uh, do you want to talk about how school officials should handle that issue? Yeah, the, the, the guidance is pretty specific. It says that the um, it is the, you know, should be the policy that this is a student-driven um, discussion. So if the student says, this is who I am, and this is how I want to be recognized, this is my name, these are my pronouns, then the school, under the guidance and under the law against discrimination, which the guidance is, is based off of, is required to, to conform to the student's request. And it's important to note, and this gets very controversial, but it doesn't have to be with the permission of the parents. So if the student says, I don't want my parents to know, under the Department of, of Education guidance in New Jersey, the school should not inform the parents. Now, we could get into a much broader discussion about, you know, what you should talk to the student about, because to the extent the student is is coming to school and the parents don't know about it, but once in school is presenting, instead of presenting as John, they're now presenting as Mary, which is their gender identity, word is gonna filter back through students to their parents and everything else. And sooner or later, the, the students' parents, the transgender students' parents are gonna, going to learn. So there has to be discussions and edu education with the student in terms of, of the likely consequences. But the guidance itself is very clear that you honor the student's request. And it, it doesn't depend on the age of the student. It doesn't say you honor that request when they're in middle school and high school, you know, across the board. And, you know, the point uh, you raised about parents uh, goes even further. It might be not that the parent is unaware, but the parent is very aware of what the child is saying and simply won't accept it and doesn't agree with it and might even tell school officials, I don't care what my child says to you my child is a boy or my child is a girl, and this is the name you will use. So what do school officials do then when the parent is very aware and is specifically saying, uh, this is what I need you to do regardless of what my child is telling you? 
the law is clear, the law against discrimination is clear, and the guidance from the Department of Education is clear that you honor who the student is um, and who the student tells you they are. Obviously, that creates a very difficult situation for the school uh, in terms of dealing with, with the child and de dealing with the parents who are, are probably going to be very upset about that. But in terms of the guidance, what the guidance says is that you honor the student's decision and, and who they are. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it can be a very difficult situation. And when people say, you know, that doesn't seem right, you know, um, you know, the parents should have the final choice. I mean, the statistics are staggering in terms of children that um, who are transgender who have no acceptance. Um, and the the rate of, of suicidality um, and suicidal thoughts is, again, over 50% for students who are, are not accepted, or I should say children who are not accepted um, anywhere. So the statistics also tell us that once that child is accepted or has some acceptance, even if that's in school, those rates of suicidality, those rates of, of, of you know, feeling unwanted and, and feeling lost drop dramatically. So if the school is the sole safe haven for that child, if we don't respect that child in terms of who they are and who they say they are, we are putting that child at greater risk. So while I understand the controversy that surrounds, you know, not honoring what the parent is telling us, there's fact-based data that shows that this is in the best interest of the child to protect the child from self-harm. It's such an important point, and you're right. If we look at the data um, on a whole range of issues, um, we can see a huge difference when there's an affirming environment. So uh, when we don't have that affirming environment, there are increases in substance use. There are increases in homelessness, as sometimes children are, are forced out of the home. Um, so those are all incredibly important um, considerations. Let's touch on the issue of participation in athletics and how New Jersey um, is addressing that issue for transgender students. Sure. In terms of um, high school athletics, where you, you would see it most often, um, there's an organization called the uh, NJSIAA, New Jersey State Interscholastic Athletic Association, and they govern most high school sports in the state of New Jersey. And in 2009, they issued a policy that said that student athletes can participate in accordance with their gender identity. They updated that policy in 2017, I believe it was, to simplify it. But the core principle that a student can participate in sports in accordance with their gender identity or in accordance with their sex assigned at birth, the student's decision, um, as long as they don't do both. So you can't play both boys volleyball and girls volleyball. That is the policy of the state of New Jersey. And, and I think it's important to note, you know, with the controversy that's going around throughout the country on kids participating in, in sports, and in particular in high school sports, which is what the statutes are primarily uh, in other states are designed to, to ban, is that kids in New Jersey have been participating in sports in accordance with their gender identity since 2009. And there's been absolutely no controversies. And if I ask people to name a transgender high school athlete in the state of New Jersey, I'd say 99.9% .9 of the people can't name one. And the only people that I know that can are people who, you know, went to high school with somebody or they're an athletic director or a coach or someone like that. 
most normal people can't because there is no transgender athletes in the state of New Jersey or there have been none who have, you know, been taking trophies, taking spots away from girls or any of those things that you hear in terms of the arguments. And it's even more appropriate to allow children to participate in accordance with their gender identity before they get to high school because they in most cases, they haven't even been through puberty yet. And so when you look at, you know, young boys and girls, you know, from eight through, you know, 12, 13 participating in sports, they're basically the same. And most of the time, the young girls are, are better than the young boys. So, I mean, I, I think that, you know, you know, we, we've kind of lost um, track of the fact that what high school athletes or athletics is supposed to be about is about being a member of a team, about competing, about, you know, companionship, about belonging, about feeling part of your school. And instead, you know, we've got lost in these controversies over, you know, athletic scholarships and turning pro and all those kinds of things that for, again, 99.99% of high school athletes just doesn't happen. So we have to keep track of what's important about sports in terms of these controversies. And again, if you look across the country, most people can't even name a transgender high school athlete. Great point. Um, one final topic I want to briefly touch on, the idea of changing student records. So, um, you know, school officials have it, had it ingrained in them that, of course, we do not change student records. Uh, we do not change the name on records unless we have a quote unquote legal name change. Um, the New Jersey uh, guidance did address this issue. So do you want to just address um, the legal requirements related to name change and student records? Sure. I mean, as you said, the New Jersey guidance is clear that you can change the records without a court-ordered name change. Um, you have to take the records that deal with the, the name that was assigned at birth and keep them in a special place. But for all school records, including reporting test results, um, the standardized test results, you can use the child's name that they say, this is my name. They, you can use their pronouns. You can use the gender that the child says, this is who I am um, for all purposes. And that goes back to, to a, a, a little known fact is that New Jersey is a common law name change state which means in simple parlance that as long as you consistently use a name, that becomes your legal name. Now, in order to change records like a driver's license, a passport, you know, those kinds of things, you do need a court order. But that's just to, you know, officially change legal documents. So in schools, the student says, my name is Mary, my pronouns are she, her, hers, and I identify as female. That's what you use. So, of course, uh, today we have only hit the tip of the iceberg. As, as we mentioned, we spend uh, many, many hours discussing these issues because they're so important and we want to walk through the nuances. Uh, but for our purposes for the podcast, I think this was an important overview of critical topics. Uh, Robin, I do want to thank you. As always, you've been an incredible partner in all of this work that we're doing. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure to be here. For those who are interested in learning more about these issues, we encourage you to visit the Legal One website at www.njpsa.org slash Legal One NJ um, and look for the many trainings that we do offer, uh, Robin Geigel um, and myself and our other Legal One attorneys uh, throughout the year do offer trainings in much greater depth on all of these topics. So we encourage you to review our website. We want to thank all of our listeners for taking the time to learn more about this important issue. Be safe, be well, and we look forward to having you with us on future episodes of the Legal One podcast. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you would like more information on the topics we covered, a full list of episodes, or a preview of upcoming topics, please visit our website at www.njpsa.org legal1nj.